Growing Forward, a collaborative podcast about cannabis in New Mexico between New Mexico Political Report and New Mexico PBS. I'm Andy Lyman with New Mexico Political Report. I'm Megan Kamrick, a New Mexico PBS correspondent and news director at KUNM. Last week, we took listeners to a cannabis convention in downtown Albuquerque. Thank you, everybody, for being here this morning. Let me ask a couple of quick questions. Who met somebody new this morning that they networked with that taught them something they did not know? We heard from a variety of people who are angling to get into the state's newest industry. This week, we'll dive a little deeper into the business side of things, but we'll also take a look at the big picture of what happens now. To begin, the state's regulation and licensing department under Superintendent Linda Trujillo held a public rulemaking hearing on June 29th, which was also the day the state's Cannabis Regulation Act went into effect. Those rules still have to be finalized, and since that meeting, RLD has offered up a revised set of rules based on public input. They also added some new specifications, like an increased limit of 8,000 plants for producers, along with a provision that would allow some growers up to 10,000 plants. And those updated rules still have to go through the public hearing process, which is scheduled for August 6th. RLD is accepting written comments up until then, and the hearing itself is open for public comment. Listeners can find a QA and a I did several weeks back with Trujillo over at nmpoliticalreport.com, but here's a little bit of what she told me about the rulemaking procedure. So the, the new rules that were published on the 7th, are a combination of uh, the public comments that we got to the extent that we could make changes. And so we do believe that public comment is reflected in the changed rules. So they were changed because of public comment and input. Now, there are some things that we can't change. There was a lot of public comment about requiring someone to be a New Mexico resident. We don't have the authority for that. The statute is really clear that we have the responsibility to encourage New Mexico residency, but because it says that we must encourage New Mexico residency, we cannot require it. So the legislature did not give us authority to require that someone be a New Mexico resident. We're looking into ways of encouraging New Mexico residency, and that will be part of Um, as we, like, really kind of drill down into what a social equity plan is going to look like, that's going to be part of that. Do you expect any more hearings before September 1st when you're supposed to start accepting applications? I hope we don't have to have another hearing on these particular rules. Whether or not we have another hearing, all of our hope is that the rules that we put out incorporated the changes to the extent that we could by law and we felt was still maintaining public health and safety. And so it would be my hope that we don't have to take these rules back out for a public hearing again, but we still have a multitude of other things that we got to do public hearings on. And uh, whether or not we'll be in a position to have that ready to do something before September 1, I can't tell you that. We are working on a scope of work for somebody to help, uh, for a research agency to help us start the process of testing laboratories. And so depending upon how quickly that can kind of get into place and we can get started, you know, we'll be looking at new rules for 
testing labs. We'll be looking at new rules for manufacturers, new rules for couriers, for uh, retail facilities, for servers, for educational folks. So we'll be looking at all of those. But we'll also hopefully, because we also have a contractor who's going to help us with strategic planning, we'll have a better idea. And that strategic planning is going to be with the Cannabis Regulation Advisory Committee. We'll have a better defined social equity plan in place. And that may, in fact, have to go back out for rules. So there could be some other rules that we're moving forward on in a public hearing, but it would be my hope that these rules are close enough that any changes that we make now would be considered a logical outgrowth of what's already been put out for comment. Clearly, there are a lot of things happening simultaneously, and many of those things are dependent on some other event happening first. It seems a little hectic. Oh, for sure. And those trying to start a cannabis grow operation or a cannabis retail shop are waiting anxiously to get the word that they can start applying for licenses which, according to state law, has to happen no later than September 1st. But there's a side of the cannabis industry that sometimes goes overlooked and doesn't require any sort of special licensure, and that is consulting. Remember that cannabis convention from our last episode? That was organized and produced by P2M, a company started specifically to advise those trying to get their foot in the door of this new industry that's expected to see millions of dollars in collective revenue. There are three major principles of P2M. Pat Davis is an Albuquerque City Councilor and chaired the Governor's Legalization Working Group in 2019. Matt Kennicott was a staffer for former New Mexico Governor Susana Martinez and has since worked in public relations and is now involved in a CBD company. Patricia Mattioli has worked in construction project management and has advised medical cannabis companies in the past. Here's Matt Kennicott on why the three decided to start a cannabis consulting business. I I, I guess part of it is uh, cannabis is kind of an exciting, uh, not kind of, it is an exciting thing. We're seeing a movement across the country for legalization, decriminalization, uh, a lot of states moving towards recreational use. And there are folks out there that need expertise for setting up their businesses. There's a lot of rules and regulations that go into all of this. And we've all got different parts of experience with managing rules and regulations and uh, being regulators or policymakers. So uh, we saw it as an opportunity, I think, to, to come together to really have a positive impact on the, on the industry in the state. As Matt said, you know, I think really this this sort of came to us, right? Um, after legalization happened this year in this session, um, I started getting calls from, from folks that knew that I had worked on, you know, the governor's legalization task force and really quit. And Patricia and I had been uh, working uh, with some folks over the years to sort of just evaluate options in New Mexico for business, new businesses here. Um, and then we bumped into Matt, who was already doing some hemp and, uh, work and I was doing hemp work. And so we all started talking to each other trying to figure out who was going to help everybody start this new business. And we turned around and looked at each other and said, we're actually doing this already. Is there, for lack of a better term, sort of a sunset period on this? Is this sustainable where uh, 10 years down the road, there's still going to be people out here looking for ways to get into this? I think it's an ongoing industry, yes. And, and one thing to think about also is the supply chain. In addition to the actual cannabis farms, you've got accountants, you've got insurance, you've got training. So the job creation that'll go on for the next 10 years is huge. We're looking at 
possibly 11,000 jobs a year in this industry in the state of New Mexico. How do you navigate possible conflicts of interest? For instance, Pat, you're on the city council. Matt, you appear to have ties to an existing cannabis-related company. Are those issues? My company, Glow CBD, is is uh, hemp-based. Uh, we we do that through through other retail means and stuff like that. So uh, we we also don't have any plans to to put our products in uh, cannabis retail shops. So that's that's partially how we we have a firewall between those two things. You know, I'll tell you from the city's perspective, as a city councilor, um, we've we have to be very careful that we're not working and involving our clients in those city issues. So we have lawyers that are available that we know are good at city zoning issues or city business licenses, and we refer our clients there. Our business is about what happens. How do you operate your business within the four walls, right? But you're responsible as a new licensee for finding your real estate, for setting your business up, for getting your zoning, getting your permits. We just want to be sure that you have a real safe and productive operating policy that ensures that, one, you can get a good license and you can operate safely for the public. It's interesting, Matt, you worked for former Governor Susana Martinez, and at that time, Pat, you were a pretty vocal critic of that administration. How did you two connect? Uh, that's, that's funny, yeah. Um, you know, actually, it was through a, a mutual yeah. friend at a, uh, at a function up in Santa Fe, and that was the first time yeah. we'd actually met face-to-face after, after, kind of after the Susana years. Uh, I was down here working at a, at a public relations mm-hmm. firm, and our mutual friend introduced us, and we just kind of hit it off. Like, you know, I, that was business then, and trading old war stories. Now. Yeah, old war stories. Like, you know, it's uh, <laughs> I, you move on from stuff. You guys are focusing on helping people get into the business of cannabis. What are you hearing from the business community about their biggest concerns? What are will be the biggest hurdles for people? <laughs> Probably all over the map, right? <laughs> yeah, it it kind of is all over mm-hmm. the map. You know, zoning I think is obviously obviously one of the one of the bigger ones, especially shifting out of uh, what Mayor Keller had proposed. For example, we've had questions about what do the regulations say about like drive up windows, for example, or you know, there's nothing there. Is, mm. is it going to be allowed? Good question. It's really ranged mm-hmm. all all over the place. I, I'm sure you guys have heard some some more specific stuff. So yeah, first and foremost, the biggest challenge for people remember you can't apply. They're going to open new production licenses mid July, right? So if you want to be a producer, even if you're going to have a retail down the road, you could start applying and maybe growing this summer. But because of the water shortage, because that there's not a reliable amount of water for folks to start growing outdoor, it's made indoor grow space a premium, and that's mm. the real challenge. Um, as as Matt mentioned, like some of the mayor's proposals for zoning even limited that, but we're talking about pre cannabis. Warehouse inventory in Albuquerque is less than 2%. And then when you realize that a lot of it is owned by a bank or a bank backed, which means you can't use it Hmm. in in some of these uh, schemes, it really means that we have less than 1% of available warehouse space in Albuquerque that's available for cannabis. Then you have to have enough cash to run a whole year, build out your facility to wait on your crop to come in. And that really limits who can help. P2M is just one of a number of cannabis consulting companies in the state. New Mexico Senator Katie Duhigg, who was a key sponsor in getting legalization passed, recently announced her new law firm focused solely on cannabis. For those keeping score, she is the second senator to offer her expertise in cannabis law and the third legislator to do so. You can read my coverage of that issue at nmpoliticalreport.com, and we'll link to those stories in the description. Mm-hmm. 
So we know there is this sort of ancillary cannabis industry, but there's also this lane for small cannabis businesses that came out of the Cannabis Regulation Act. The law specifically defines micro-businesses as those that are limited to 200 plants, and sponsors of the bill sold it as a way to get into the industry with less of a financial barrier. Andy and I spoke with two business partners who are hoping to get an early spot in the new cannabis industry. Megan and I are sitting today with Erica Hartwick-Brown and Matt Munoz of Carver Family Farm. Thanks for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about how you, there's a third partner that's not here today, how you three came together um, and kind of came up with this business plan? um, And can you share with us what that business plan is so far? For the past several legislative sessions, I've kind of been keeping Erica and our other partner informed about what's going on with the recreational market you know, in New Mexico, what's happening with the bill. And then after the special session, we all kind of sat down and crunched numbers and, you know, tried to see if this was something that would be viable for the three of us as a partnership. And so it's all kind of come together, I'd say, since, you know, the governor signed it, what was it, April 9th or 10th, you know, it's been a month and a half of not sleeping very well and, you know, waking up at two in the morning with a lot of ideas and having to go to the computer. And so um, that's kind of how it formed. One thing to note, up until June of this year, Munoz worked for the University of New Mexico in the government relations office. So he's had years of experience with the state legislature. And he acknowledged in a separate interview for New Mexico Political Report that Carver Family Farm has a slight advantage because of his previous work. He's also quick to admit that many others trying to get their foot in the door may not have that same advantage. But here's Erica telling the story about how she and her husband, who is the third business partner, met Matt before he worked for UNM. The fun backstory of it is that um, we've known each other, uh, my husband Andrew and Matt have known each other for a few years longer, but in 2008 I moved here And in 2010, my husband, Andrew, and I uh, got our medical medicinal cards and we're doing our our personal patient production. And through that, we really grew to love this plant and what it's capable of and want to be able to share it. And the way that Andrew and Matt knew each other is that Matt was actually the counter guy at TNA which was Tobacco and Accessories, the head shop that was on Central and Carlisle before now I believe it's called the Carlisle, the condominiums that are there now. And Andrew is a a glass blower, and he worked in the back on his torch. And so that was how they became friends. And then Andrew and I got married. And so throughout the years, we've, you know, maintained this friendship and always wanted to have um, Matt's input on what was happening. So when this came to be, and we talked to Matt, and he said this might be it, we had said we've been wanting to do this. We are really good at the back of the house and the growing, um, but we need somebody in the front of the house. Do you have any ideas? Knowing that Matt had a very stable job at the time and didn't expect him to uh, give up what he was doing to come with us. But then when he said, how about me? We uh, were very excited. A moment ago, Andy mentioned how Carver Family Farm might have a slight advantage in having Matt on board with his years of experience in government. But Erica said she and her husband, Andrew, bring another lived experience to the company. I feel that we 
as a micro business, the three of us are coming from possibly a more advanced position of what we're doing because Andrew and I have had a small family business for, you know, over 10 years. And Andrew's been doing this work as a, as an entrepreneur, the, the art, the glass artwork for over 20 years. And then Matt, with the work that he did starting, you know, working as a counter person in a, in a head shop in a tobacco and accessories head shop has, um, known what it takes to have a small business in this industry. I think that many of the people that might be coming forward trying to establish what we're trying to do in micro business here will not know where to start without some kind of assistance. Remember, recreational cannabis sales won't start until next year, which means there's sort of a transition or a gray area. Right now, it's legal to grow six plants at home and up to 12 if there's more than one resident over 21. But there are still penalties for things like driving under the influence, providing cannabis to a minor, and illicit sales. We spoke with Doña Ana County Sheriff Kim Stewart about what her office is doing to prepare for legalization even before sales start. You can find more of our conversation with Sheriff Stewart linked in the description for this episode. Even though the use and possession of cannabis will soon be legal, smoking it in public will still be illegal, along with unauthorized sales. And there are some penalties for things like that in the new law. So what kind of guidance are you giving your officers in terms of enforcement of things like giving or selling cannabis to a minor or using it in public? I think where we're going to get the calls, uh, this is just, again, from what I anecdotally have seen. It's from the school. The schools are going to be calling us saying uh, Johnny or Jane has shown up today and they're reeking with the odor of of cannabis. Okay, and Johnny or Jane has said that, well, my parents grow it and my parents use it and I am reeking of it because I come out of that household. Okay, you're going to have to decide then where do we get involved with looking into the welfare of a child, right? Do we take that kind of thing? Uh, seriously? Uh, should we? You know, there's really no guidance about that. So I've told my people, that let's get ready for uh, being called from the school. Uh, we're not going to be going out on, uh, I, I smell, you know, plants in my neighbor's yard. We're not going to be going out on that. Because theoretically, that's an RLD issue. You know, they say they're in charge of enforcement. Okay, so some of that is going to have to fall into their laps. You have to remember it is federally illegal, federally illegal. So one of my concerns has always been, do you want to put your population in harm's way in terms of federal law? And I've heard, oh, no, the feds keep hands off. Do you know that was only during the Obama administration that they had that agreement? That ended with the last administration and the new administration has not weighed in on that. So let me tell you, DEA's office is over here in El Paso. I could see a day where they get a call and they're out doing a search warrant on a big grow house. I really could see that. And we have put our people 
into that pathway. Can I ask a quick follow-up about the impairment issues? Can you talk a little bit more about what your officers will be doing around that and how that's going to work? I know that was an ongoing concern by people, and I'm just curious what that looks like. You know, there are companies right now that are trying to uh, promote a roadside test for cannabis, and there's nothing that really is... uh, tested enough or is reliable enough for us to invest in that. But know that there's a whole industry out there that would love to be able to do something similar to a breathalyzer, right? Uh, And toxalyzer at the roadside. So they're going to have to rely a lot more on objective symptoms. And again, can't use odor. You could say, well, you know, red eyes or uh, sort of a flat affect or very uh, uh, diminished uh, energy or that type of thing. Well, again, that also could reflect alcohol intoxication. In fact, it closely mirrors it, right? You may not have a level of aggression that you might have with uh, alcohol impairment, but you certainly would have objective symptomology. So I think what's has happened, I've read that's happened in these other states is they've just focused on alcohol impairment. So if they're just just uh, impaired by cannabis use, that is probably not going to get our attention as much because those objective symptoms mirror intoxication. So if there is odor of alcohol, we're going to go with intoxication. We're not going to go on impairment or trying to make a case in most instances on cannabis use. Now, the qualifier there is if there is a fatality, if there is an accident with serious injury or fatality, then I think the drug recognition experts will come in and make uh, a full-blown case that it is just cannabis or it's cannabis and alcohol. Andy might know this already from his work, but I'm curious, the drug recognition experts, these are these are going to be officers who are trained in that, or they're going to be separate people coming into your department? Or? They are trained. They are within our department. All departments have them now. And they actually undergo quite a lot of training because it's all going to be objective symptomology and it's going to be signs of sim- and symptoms. And it's all going to be articulated very carefully in the report if we were going to make an arrest. So it is a specialty. We also spoke with Diana Luce, who is the district attorney for the state's 5th Judicial District in the southern part of the state. Luce also serves as the president of the New Mexico District Attorneys Association. First off, I guess it could be seen as sort of a moot point since it's legal, but what was your or even the New Mexico District Attorney Association's stance on legalization before this Cannabis Regulation Act became law? The New Mexico District Attorneys Association didn't take a position on legalization. Uh, We simply were concerned about the effects it would have on uh, the current criminal statutes that we have, uh, as well as driving under the influence. As for the fifth district attorney, um, I didn't take a position really on legalization. Um, My office stopped prosecuting most misdemeanor crimes in 2009 with the prior elected district attorney, Janetta Hicks, uh, we focus on DWIs and domestic violence. Um, so primarily marijuana usually falls under misdemeanor. 
And it's up to district attorneys like yourself, as you alluded to, to decide what charges to bring. The bill sponsors pointed out that communities of color have borne the brunt of the war on drugs. Will this legalization do anything to change these social equity issues in New Mexico and how you approach cases? I think the bill, and it's, if I remember correctly, 172 pages, it seems to still have some ambiguities as you read through it as how it's going to impact crime and the prosecution. It limits the use of what odor, seeing marijuana for stops, uh, searches, uh, doesn't if it's starting an influence. So I think it's going to be a complete shift for law enforcement on how they investigate other um, drug crimes. Uh, and oftentimes drug crimes are connected with burglaries, a lot of property crime. Uh, so I think it's going to mean a lot of retraining uh, for law enforcement, and we're going to have to navigate our way through the court system for did we all do this correctly. By now, it's probably pretty clear that there is a lot yet to be figured out by next year when legal sales are slated to start. We'll probably just have to wait and see how law enforcement and prosecutors' caseloads and processes change Meanwhile, though, business owners are eagerly awaiting to get their applications into RLD and the Cannabis Control Division, and that's a timeline we at least have an idea about. RLD, by law, has to start accepting applications no later than September 1st and has to start issuing licenses no later than January 1st next year. Then commercial sales have to begin no later than April 1st next year. Back in May, RLD Superintendent Linda Trujillo told us that failure to make those statutory deadlines is not an option because, well, it's the law. The timeline is really tight for all of this, Superintendent, for these pieces to come together. Is it doable? Does this look like a face that's been sleeping? (laughs) Well, I don't doubt that, but you could never sleep, but maybe not get all of this done. Yeah, it's just not an option for us to not get it done. If failure is is not even in the books, it's not an option. So we have to do it. But what we are doing and what we're trying to do is to be realistic and to prioritize the things that are the most important, focus all of our attention on those, get as much input as we can from those who are already in the business and try to roll that into the rules that we have to adopt. So Is the timeline tight? Yeah, it is. If you listen to me when I spoke in testified in committee and even on the floor answering, you know, through the representative or the senators and the committee as a whole, I said to everyone, this timeline is really unrealistic. We were able to stretch out what we could. You know, we did the no later than September, the first draft of it was for us to start licensing people, everyone, in like October. And then to have this up in adult use cannabis available for sale in January. And, you know, my staff was, was like, we can't do this. And so what I did is I really charted out the laws that we have to adhere to in order to adopt rules. And the rules that we have to adopt, put it into a spreadsheet. The staff helped me do that. And then we took it to the legislators and said, here's the reality. This is what we can do. And this is what we can't do. And gratefully they listened to us, um, but it's 
still on as close of a tight line as I agreed that we would make happen. This was another episode of Growing Forward, a collaboration between New Mexico PBS and New Mexico Political Report, where we explore cannabis in New Mexico. Thanks to Catherine Connolly for designing our logo, and a special thanks to our producer, Kevin McDonald, for all the work he does for us behind the scenes. Join us next time as we explore cannabis testing. I really think we need to see how many licenses go out first. Um, I think the next lab in New Mexico should probably be one for RLD. You know, if they're going to certify all of these procedures that we do, they probably need to do that in-house also.